Honorable, the Chief Justice and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. Oyez, oyez, oyez. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to give their attention, for the Court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable Court. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. That was Marshall Pamela Talkin introducing the Supreme Court's unusual May argument session. Joining me to discuss the May argument session is our co-founder and publisher of SCOTUS blog, Tom Goldstein. Tom, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So a couple of things that were a little bit different. Um, that was a recording of Pamela Talkin. And there was one thing that was a little bit different. She didn't say draw near in her introduction to practice good social distancing. Um, the oral arguments can just talk a little bit about how we got to the unusual May argument session. Well, as everyone knows, of course, we have the pandemic that's affected all kinds of governmental institutions, including the Supreme Court, which decided it wasn't safe to have oral arguments in the courtroom, but that they did want to keep holding arguments rather than pushing all of the cases, rather than about half of the still pending ones into next term. And I think once they decided they were going to do it telephonically, it became very hard to say that they wouldn't allow the public to listen in. And so they did it, and uh, it was carried live by a bunch of the different networks and by us uh, with C-SPAN in doing a little bit of live blogging. And it was just a really shocking, essentially, for an institution that is so bound up with tradition to make this big break. The Supreme Court used a slightly different format for oral arguments rather than the format that they started using this term in which the advocates get a couple of minutes to make an opening statement and then you have the free-for-all with the justices frequently interrupting the advocates at will to ask questions Each justice had a specific amount of time to ask questions and for the lawyers to answer, starting with the chief justice. And then the chief justice was the referee asking uh, each justice to proceed, starting with Justice Clarence Thomas and then going in order of reverse seniority down to Justice Kavanaugh. And so that meant we heard from Justice Thomas quite a bit. And here's Justice Clarence Thomas for the first time in the oral argument in the Booking.com case, which was the first argument of the May session. Thank you, counsel. Uh, Justice Thomas? Uh, yes, uh, Ms. Ross, the, a couple of questions. Um... So Justice Thomas is, is well-known, among other things, for not participating very often in the oral arguments, but we heard a lot from him. Um, he didn't pass, I don't think, even when given the opportunities, unlike some other justices. Can you talk a little bit about, about why this format saw more questions from Justice Thomas? Well, we don't know exactly, but it does seem to fit with his previous suggestion that he thinks there's just too much crosstalk, too much going on, and it's hard to get in a coherent question and a coherent answer that he seems to really prefer and appreciate the uh, regimented structure where he'll get to ask a question and he'll get an answer and then the court will move on after his allocated three minutes. Um, and so it did show that he never uh, you know, had any fundamental objection to oral argument in any way, was always very engaged in it. Uh, but just, I think, probably prefers this format much better. 
The other justices, and we, we'll, I'll play an, an example in just a moment from the Booking.com argument right off the bat, actually keyed off of his questions. Here's Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I have another question I wanted to ask you, and it's a follow-up to Justice Thomas. And then a couple minutes later, here's Justice Stephen Breyer. <laughs> Same question. Uh, Justice Thomas's question. Good morning, anyway. <laughs> Justice Thomas's question, Justice Ginsburg, what do you want to say about that? And then Justice Thomas gave us one of the more memorable moments of the May argument session in a question for Jason Harrow, who argued on behalf of the presidential electors challenging Colorado's so-called faithless electors law in Colorado versus BACA. He had a question about Frodo Baggins. Here's Justice Clarence Thomas. You have a similar problem because the elector who had promised to vote for the winning candidate could suddenly say, you know, uh, I'm going to vote for Frodo Baggins. And that's, I really like Frodo Baggins. And you're saying under your system, you can't do anything about that. So as somebody who's argued before the court many times, what did you think of the format more broadly? Lyle Denniston, um, our, our former reporter and a longtime observer of the court, the, the dean emeritus of the Supreme Court press corps, was, was very critical of the format. He was, and I can certainly understand that view for traditionalists, but I have to say I think there's a lot to be said for this format. Now, you don't get as much coherence with one justice you know, immediately following on the question from another, but as the examples you gave with Justice Thomas showed, the court's members do come back to earlier questions that may have been 10 minutes before from another justice. So there was some kind of narrative consistency, some follow through between members of the court. And just when you are interrupted less and when the justices themselves are interrupted less, you can get out more of an organized thought. There was so much pressure before in the ordinary live argument format to make sure that you could get a point in within 30 seconds. And now that 30 seconds is a minute and a half, and you still do get the justices interrupting the advocates, but it is a more straightforward process. Also, I think you get the justices uh, asking questions that they've prepared more because each of them knows essentially they're going to be called on like they're in class. And so I think they know going in what it is that they want to ask about, which I think is a valuable thing. On the other hand, I think it's harder to predict the outcome of the cases in this format because each justice has questions for each side. And therefore, it is you know less predictable. It used to be that they would only bother, generally speaking, to ask questions of the side that they were kind of hostile to, uh, at least for most members of the court. And that's no longer true. That's exactly what I would have said as a reporter. It made it, I felt, much harder to cover the case in the sense that if you're trying to write about how the case might come out, it made it much harder predict, to predict because you can't look at who, who asked the most questions, who followed up to press a particular point, who didn't ask questions, which is often a sign of whose vote it is maybe easy to predict or in some cases harder to predict, but often easier to predict if you have a sense of where they might already be likely to go. And I think the court probably loves that. I think that they 
really kind of hate the prognostication and tea leaf reading that comes from oral arguments. They hate the idea that there'll be a sense of how they're going to rule before the opinion comes out. So this is, you know, uh, only to the good from their perspective, I'm sure. It was interesting towards the end of the session, you did see the justices say, oh, I'll pass uh, in a way that maybe they hadn't felt comfortable doing towards the beginning of the session. And I think we might see more of that as they get used to the format, because one of the things that they will recognize is that it is hard for them to get through a series of points when they're strictly limited to three minutes. You saw or heard a number of instances when the chief justice was essentially cutting off members of the court in order to try and keep to a particular schedule. So they may, as a courtesy to each other, pass more in order to free up additional time. One other thing that is hard about this format, I should say, is that lots of times in Supreme Court arguments, where we, of course, have the advocates with 30 minutes each, which should make for a uh, hour-long argument. And that fits pretty well if each member of the court gets three minutes, because that's 27 minutes. And then you have two minutes for an introduction and one minute to close. So it fits perfectly. But a lot of arguments are instead 20 minutes, then 10, because they're divided between the party and most often the United States of America. And in that situation, there really isn't a good way to keep to the time because then you're keeping each justice to two minutes maybe. And then what do you do for questioning in the 10-minute session? Do you give everyone one minute? It it doesn't really work. And so in those divided oral arguments, we saw the court going long uh, and the arguments lasting, say, an hour and a half instead of an hour. Because then if one side, because of the United States being uh, with them, gets extra time, then the chief justice has to balance it out with the other side. And so I think they're going to try probably to find a solution where there are fewer questions asked in those divided arguments, or maybe we'll have fewer divided arguments. The other thing I realized we didn't see a lot of as a result of the new format, for better or for worse, is softballs. Sometimes when you have a lawyer struggling in some of these hotly divided cases, you'll see justice from the other side, so to speak, jump in with a softball question to sort of rescue the the lawyer who's struggling. And when it's one justice's allotted time, nobody else can do that. That's right. I think that the justices really are coming in with questions for each side. And you see less of a justice kind of just sitting back and not coming in until they really decide they need to make a point for their side. And that's much, it's much easier to do softballs when you can just interject at any time. But when you're going to have to wait your term and it might be 20 minutes later, uh, then it's much harder to do. The other thing I'll say is that the, the people who probably don't love this format are going to be a Justice Kavanaugh, a Justice Gorsuch, a Justice Kagan, because they have to wait. And it's very, very, very hard for them to shape the oral argument when they're the least senior and therefore are going at the end of the questioning for each advocate. If a Justice Kagan, who you know can be very strategic and trying to figure out where her colleagues are at and what the way the court might get to five votes, you know whether where she might jump in earlier to try and you know focus on a point that the Chief Justice made or previously Justice Kennedy, now she's just kind of stuck. And she can still be influential, but it's it's not as good. It's a little bit like when they actually vote. They vote in order of seniority. Uh, and so the chief justice will explain what he's going to do in the merits of the case, and then all the way down. And then the junior justice doesn't have as much of an opportunity to persuade the other members of the court uh, as someone who's who's been there and is going to speak earlier. 
And I actually thought several of Justice Kavanaugh's questions were in those veins, were much less sort of, this is what's bothering me, than sort of, here is the lay of the land in some of the, the big cases this term. On the one hand, we have X. On the other hand, we have Y. And how do we balance these two sets of concerns? Much more sort of big picture, kind of the kinds of questions that I feel like we often see from Elena Kagan. Yeah, Justice Kavanaugh, I do think, finds it quite important to to show a lot of balance, to show how he is looking to both sides. We had, for example, uh, other big picture questions from him in the electors case, for example. He asked this very, very broad question that said, you know, the other side says that if electors can vote for whoever they like, that's going to generate chaos uh, and is going to be a complete mess. And you might call it kind of the chaos theory of constitutional interpretation, that if a case is close, let's, you know, Let's not read the Constitution to invite disaster. What do you think of that? And in general, I thought that the questioning had more of a, you know, give me your take on something feel than sometimes the, or the traditional oral arguments uh, have a more kind of pointed hostility. Uh, the justices, I think, in, in the courtroom seem more willing to kind of go after the advocates and if you ask me, like, what is the one consequence of the public's immediate access to the oral arguments, I suppose I think that's conceivable, that the members of the court, as the public, you know, for the first time, you could have tens of thousands of people listening to the oral argument, they really wanted to show how the, the process is intended to gather information and not just be a political scrum. I just want to talk for a second about the substance of the oral argument. Were there any moments that stood out to you? No, I think that the the oral arguments were really wonderful in terms of um, not getting into crazy little minutia, in terms of sticking with the big picture. I thought that they were very accessible. They had a lot of concerns about uh, what the court is most often concerned about in oral argument, line drawing. So, for example, in the faithless electors uh, oral arguments, there were a lot of questions about, you know, could the state prosecute for this, for that, for bribery? Could they make him take a pledge? And these are things where the justices are trying to figure out how to write an opinion and how to test each side's rules. So I thought that the public got a, you know, a very good sense of uh, how the Supreme Court thinks about cases. I mean... When we've talked about, and when I've talked about live audio or cameras in the courtroom, one of the concerns that people often cite of the justices in not allowing live audio or live video is the idea that talk show hosts or others are going to make the justices look bad. Um, I've often thought that, in fact, cameras in the courtroom would, in fact, reveal that the Supreme Court is the most functional branch of government or perhaps the least dysfunctional branch of government. And I feel like these arguments really showed that. Right. And I think that the court probably differentiates or members of the court probably differentiate between video and just audio. And I think they're probably most comfortable with audio to the extent they're going to have to do anything. They do seem to like the privacy of being not recognizable. But I don't uh, see, I haven't heard anyone tell of anything that was done with uh, audio that was problematic. Uh, anything that would have caused the, caused the justices to think it was being misused, that they were being humiliated, 
that it was uh, being taken out of context in news reporting on the same day because it used to be that the oral argument audio was available at the end of the week. And if you were going to see it, I think you most likely would have seen it in the Trump tax return cases because those are so politically fraught that people on either side would take advantage of the audio if they were going to manipulate it, if they were going to misuse it, or if talk show hosts were going to make fun of the court because of it. The thing about Supreme Court oral arguments, I just really agree that they show the justices in the best, most serious light, but they're not very sexy. It's not really that easy to come up with a soundbite out of them that someone in the public could be like, oh my God. And uh, with the passing of the late Justice Scalia, we lost... Uh, maybe some of the most colorful questioning uh, that would generate the kind of loudest uh, laughter in the courtroom and that might generate the, the greatest public reaction. There's certainly no grandstanding by the lawyers. For most of the lawyers, you really did just have the sense, I, I imagine it was incredibly difficult to be sitting in a conference room somewhere talking into a speakerphone but for most of them, you really did just have the sense that you know, Lisa Blatt was sitting at her dining room table having a conversation on the phone with the justices, just not that much different from the way it would have been had she been in the courtroom. Yeah, I definitely don't perceive that there was much different at all in how the, uh, the advocates were behaving. There was a little less by the advocates in trying to relate different sets of questions to each other. I think the advocates are trying to adjust to it. Uh, The advocates don't have the benefit of visual cues. They don't have the suggestion, as clear a suggestion of where the justices are at because they're asking pretty balanced questions of both sides. The one thing that the advocates haven't yet really started to do is adapt to this three minutes. Uh, And I think you will, if this continues into the fall where we're doing it by telephone and there's this regimented three minutes for each justice, I think you will see the advocates kind of using clocks uh, by their phone so that they can tell when their time is running out so that they get as much of an answer in as they can. There were some technical issues. The Justice Sonia Sotomayor had a few issues with her mute button, particularly in the first one, booking.com. Here's Justice Sonia Sotomayor, preceded by the Chief Justice, John Roberts. Justice Sotomayor. Justice Sotomayor? I'm sorry, Chief. And then again on the second day of oral arguments. Uh, Justice Sotomayor? Justice Sotomayor? I am sorry, Chief. Did it again. Um, Mr. Michelle? But Justice Sotomayor was not the only one who had issues with her mute button. Here's Justice Breyer having some problems. Hey. If that's Thank true, then counsel, there's no reason. Justice, Justice Breyer. Justice Breyer. Justice Alito. And there were others too. I think Justice Gorsuch might have missed his turn. And then at one point we heard Justice Alito's phone chime. Uh, so so there were, there were some, some issues with the mute button. And then there was the toilet flush heard around the world. He has said is that when the subject matter of the call ranges to the topic. Ashley Feinberg of Slate has analyzed the toilet flush in excruciating detail, so we won't go into it here. You can read her, read her article if you are so inclined. Uh, the other thing, truthfully, I, I, we 
did a long series on SCOTUS blog on public access to the Supreme Court. And one of the, the posts that I did on video and audio in state Supreme Courts and international Supreme Courts uh, suggested that it was, among other things, a massive civics lesson to put these oral arguments online. And people really use this as a civics lesson. I saw lots of tweets about people from people about how they were enjoying this. SCOTUS blog had educational seminars. The National Constitution Semin- uh, Center had educational seminars. I know that uh, others, Neil Katyal and George Conway, did a seminar on Trump's tax returns. It was a lot of fun to be able to, to cover it in real time. It is interesting that the fact that the audio was released you know, at the same time the argument was happening, not on Friday, made all the difference in the world. There's no necessary reason why that should be true. But there is culturally the sense of that it's different to participate in something that's live, that's happening right then. It's almost like a sporting event of sorts. And so the level of participation was wildly higher uh, for streaming arguments than otherwise. I mean, you're talking about tens of thousands of people uh, listening in for, for example, the Trump tax returns oral argument. Whereas in ordinary times, if the uh, audio was released on the Friday, I think you would have maybe had hundreds of people listening. And so the notion that the country is listening in, finding it valuable, learning about their Supreme Court is, I think, what advocates have brought in public access to the court's proceedings have been talking about the whole time. You know, it is a public governmental proceeding. It is almost impossible to get into the courtroom and listen in real time in ordinary times because there are just so few seats. There are all kinds of problems like paid line standards that have been explored in your pieces and other ones in the in the series. And, you know, I hope that what we'll see is as this, you know, continues, uh, if it does, that there's a greater public confidence in the Supreme Court. The real puzzle to me is when the court goes back into the courtroom and when the public is allowed back into the courtroom, will they continue to do this? They clearly have the technology to do it. Uh, hopefully they've had a good experience. I think this one may, uh, may be a bell that can't be unrung. Um, of course, the justices can do whatever they want. They don't really respond to public pressure. But I would, I, I just think that, you know, the court's failure to do audio for a long time was a result of kind of institutional inertia that that's gone. The one other thing is that if we're right in suggesting that the justices are most hostile to video, audio may well be what saves them from video. Uh, And I think it will be very, very, very hard for advocates of greater public access to be insisting on video of the proceedings when audio is available. Video really shouldn't make any difference at all, to be honest. Uh, I mean, you know, seeing the looks on their faces or whatever. And so they may stick with audio and uh, you know, we may not get video for 10 more years. But audio would be better than nothing at all. Much better. Uh, I think that it's, you know, unconscionable, to be perfectly honest, that the court has the technology that allows uh, this to happen, that it's an open public proceeding, and they just don't. 
And I do think that the release of audio on the Friday is in effect calculated to be able to say we are releasing the audio, but not in a time that you know is really timely and close to the oral argument when there would be a lot of public interest in use of it. So I, I think it's, audio is great. And you have to separate out audio from this format, because once they go back into the courtroom, they'll revert mostly, I think, to their old way of doing things in terms of the crosstalk and the questioning that Lyle Denniston likes so much more. Uh, but just in terms of the broadcasting of it, hopefully they'll, they'll keep it up. What they won't have is, is probably as much active participation by the networks and by C-SPAN, but they can just stream it off their own website and anybody can pick it up who wants to. Well, we'll see. And who knows where they'll be when arguments start back up in October. Yeah, I don't think the court knows either. Uh, the advocates don't really know uh, how to prepare to the extent that they're going to prepare differently with their moot courts and things like that. But, you know, I, I'm sure the court has concern about all of its members, all of the public, but particularly the older members who just fit into a demographic that is particularly vulnerable to COVID-19. Um, so if you were to ask me what my current betting is, because I have an argument in October that's held over from this term is, I think, in October. My bet is that we'll still be doing it telephonically, but it's impossible to predict. So when she gaveled the oral arguments uh, in the Faithless Electors case to a close, the marshal said something that I think was Latin for, in essence, see you next time, because they don't know when the court will next be in session. So see you next time. Thanks for joining us. Uh, this is Amy Howe, Tom, Tom Goldstein, Scotus Talk. Thanks. That's another episode of Skoda's Talk. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Case Text, our sponsor, and thanks to our production team, Katie Bart, Cal Goldie, and Edith Roberts.